0: You're listening to Work Human Radio. And here's your host, Mike Wood. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Work Human Radio. My name is Mike Wood. I am your host, and I'm joined by Sarah Payne, as always. Uh, Sarah, today we are talking to David Rock, who I believe is one of the first speakers at Work Human, right?
1: Yes, he's part of our pre conference session on April 2nd. And he's going to be talking about couple different areas, but basically he coined the term "neuroleadership" leadership uh, a few years back. And it's really a way of applying neuroscience to performance at work, diversity and inclusion, and leadership and change. Um, how can we basically design processes and systems at work that make sense according to how our brains work? Oh, cool. So if you like to nerd out on
0: data, this <laughs> is the episode for you, right? That's true. <laughs> All right. So here's our interview with David Rock, who is the founder of the whole neural leadership movement.
1: First I just want to thank you for joining us on Work Human Radio. Thanks. Good to be here with you. So David, can you just start with a little bit of background on neuroleadership? You know, what led you to this idea and where you're at today with NLI?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um I've been involved in designing and delivering change programs and leadership programs for a long time and and I, I noticed that um, one of the real challenges is um, building self-awareness, in particular, of, um, of, you know, leaders at any level. and particular, as you go up an organization, you know, you, re- you really need more uh, science than kind of has been available and also a more solid science. And um, i would had a personal interest in brain and brain research for about 20 years. I've been reading pretty deeply, reading papers, books, and, um, and I just started to include a little bit about the brain in some of our leadership programs way back in uh, really 2002, 2003. Um, and I noticed that um, they just made the, the, the whole learning experience that much better for people. And it wasn't so much about kind of marketing or you know buzz or uh, any of that. It was actually the, the the leaders in the programs we're running understood the concepts better when we were able to explain them biologically and they accepted them more, they thought about them differently. Um, and that just set off, a, set off kind of a quest that um, resulted in you know, writing a book, Your Brain at Work, and starting an institute and you know, now publishing 60 research papers. But it, it all started with this quest to, to be able to explain you know, good leadership from the perspective of just basic biology. And it turned out no one else had done that, and we just kind of jumped into the fray. And uh, um, you know, now uh, you know, millions of people are now learning about the brain as a result of the the work we're doing.
1: I can see how it legitimize, you know, some of the ideas that it seem inherent to to some people, but to leaders, they, you know, it makes more sense when you explain it from a biological standpoint.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and the, um, you know, what I understand now is that, you know, when you're trying to make someone think something difficult. And if you're trying to give someone a hard thought, the more concrete that thought is or that idea is, the easier it is to process. You know, the more an idea can be literally animated in the brain, like visualized. Um, the easier it is to actually uh, hold in mind and you know, look at it from different angles, both metaphorically and physically. Um, and so, you know, when we're talking about um, you know networks in the brain for uh, for different functions, you know, we, we can really animate that concept in the brain itself. And uh, it's a little meta, but you know, basically you know, teaching people about themselves with the construct of the brain makes it easier to you know think about the self. And others, and, and how everything interacts.
1: Right, and you know, a lot of companies today are talking about redoing their performance management process. You know, if a company wanted to totally redo that process with the human brain in mind, what would that look like?
2: Yeah, well, we we uh, when we first started out doing our research, we um, published a lot of papers, kind of in lots of different areas, lots of different topics. And about five years ago, we um, realized there were kind of three big themes that were starting to emerge and um, it was really about um, performance and, and how do you improve overall performance of individuals and teams and organizations and um, how do you improve decision making secondly and, and reduce bias and um, all that and then the third is, is how do you really create change and so we end up forming into these, these three practices and um, a performance practice um, is really about how do you have better conversations with people? And, and we think the heart of improving performance is, is literally improving the quality and quantity of conversations themselves. Um, and it's interesting that something so important, you know, a conversation, is actually so rarely studied or even talked about. Um, so we've been developing language and insight in measuring the, the, the success of conversations, but increasing the, in particular increasing the quality. Um, and, and being able to identify with a quality when, when a conversation you know really really works so for us it's it's really the science of of better conversations that's that's the heart to to improving performance management. Mm-hmm.
1: and I had the privilege of attending your conference in New York uh, about a month ago, and I thought it was really fascinating how uh, you talked about the language that you use to talk about performance is really important too, so it just even the words you use with employees can make a big difference.
2: You know, I like I opened the the conference, we call it the Neuroleadership Summit. I opened it this year with um the, the concept of disruptive language. And you know, we live in disruptive times where everything's changing, but actually we need language that helps us disrupt the disruption, so to speak. Um, you know, good language that um is that is sticky, that like changes how we see the world, um, is is disruptive and you know, an example of that is um you know, this concept of uh, toward and away—really, uh, a simple idea that you know. Every interaction we have, every idea that we process, every concept we think about—you know—we have one of two responses: a toward response, you know, we want more of it; or an away response, we want less of it. Um, and this has real neural correlates. This, you know, this is the way the brain processes the world, all the way down to the level of neurons and how they stick together. But, but this, this concept of toward and away—you can actually see it in yourself. You can see it in others. And once you learn just a little bit about it. You can't not see it. Um, you can't like it immediately is there. And even if you're not consciously seeing it after that, it's it's actually driving your behavior. It's disrupting how you live in the world. Um and that's an example of disruptive language and it just it, it changes how we process the world. And um you know, what we've been doing is is developing disruptive language to help people be more effective in uh you know, in challenging times. And it was definitely a hit at the uh the summit this year.
1: And so you mentioned one of the other three areas that uh, Neuroleadership Institute works on is uh, diversity and inclusion. Uh, why is it that you know, despite the best intentions, so many of these programs fail and how can you know, HR leaders in particular change that? Yeah, a, I mean it's a big story.
2: I'll give you kind of a cliff note, but I mean, essentially the human brain has
1: enormous,
2: enormous bias and that's not a bad thing. It's actually essential. It's important. It's fabulous. Um, I mean, bias is just another way of saying approximation, or generalization, or categorization. Um, and you can't look at every table and and start to think again: is this a table? Is this a chair? Is this a wall? You know, you've got to assume it's a table and put things on it. Um, and you know, every object we come across, we need to use some kind of bias, some kind of your know, predetermined association. And unfortunately, where this goes wrong is is um, we accidentally are biased against. Um, you know, shorter people in favor of taller people, um, you know, people with shorter, easier names. And, uh, you know, we, we prefer those against people with more complex names. And, you know, there's many, many ways where people are kind of unfairly disadvantaged or unfairly advantaged um, on, on the human side. But also on the business decision side, there's, you know, many, many poor decisions made because of bias. And and basically, it's just the way the brain works. We we don't have much at all in terms of really solid, rational uh, decision making resources. You know, the human brain starts to max out at adding up four digits mentally. Um so, you know, we don't have a lot of conscious resources, so we have to go on these biases. Um and it's just you know, it's it's the nature of the nature of the beast. Now what, what organizations have to do is recognize that and this is the hard bit, have to recognize that just raising awareness that we have bias actually doesn't do very much at all. And the reason for that is the way the brain is built, uh the number of things we can't do Uh, We can't see infrared light. Um, We can't uh, manage our pancreas uh, unaided, and we also can't see our own bias uh, to any great extent at all. You know, the three things are equally true. Um, Lots of things we can't do. We can't run 100 miles an hour. We can't, um, no, we can't swim 20 miles an hour. We can't, uh, you know, sniff things in the air 100 miles away. There's you know, huge things we can't do, and actually other creatures can do them, you know, without thinking. but we can't, and and we can't detect our own bias. But it's really uncomfortable to to think that. So um, it, it's tricky. You know, a lot of the work around um, mitigating the DNI challenge and you know reducing the DNI challenge has been on you know let's try to raise awareness of the fact that bias exists. But to actually reduce bias, um, the path isn't really raising awareness. Um, well, I mean, you can start that way, but you've got to really quickly move on to strategies that actually work, which is is, is definitely not just raising awareness. It's it's actually identifying the kind of bias happening and then um applying a mitigation strategy that actually will work for that kind of bias um in in many ways it's like a disease you 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 know if someone comes and says, "I'm feeling sick, I've got nausea i'm i'm uh, you know got a headache and it's been going on for months you know you want you want to know what's going on to actually treat it you've got to know what's really happening. you can't just throw antibiotics at them if it's malaria um and so, in the same way with bias, you've actually got to treat it directly with knowing the kind of bias you're dealing with, um, and that's that's been really difficult to do. Um, so, yeah, we we developed a solution in that space, but it's it's a very tricky thing to mitigate bias. It's actually easy to raise awareness of it. The challenge is that basically doesn't do much, um, mm-hmm. and uh, because of the the, the the nature of it. So, yeah, more to say, but you know, it gives you a taste of of, of the space.
1: Mm-hmm. And I know the, at WorkHuman, you'll be talking more about uh, feedback.
2: Yeah, feedback is a really interesting thing. You know, it's um, in the performance management revolution that's happening. And I know Global Force is big in this, and we've been a big part of this as well um, with our research. But, the the you know, everyone's coming down to feedback as kind of the next frontier. And I, I kind of feel like we're moving from, you know, performance management to feedback management um, mm-hmm. in, in many organizations. and. Uh, it's really interesting. Um, the nature of feedback is it doesn't really matter how it's couched. It's detected as a threat. It's detected as something to, um, you know, that's bad for us. That's to be avoided. That's, you know, that's painful. And um, the only way, oh, and that, by the way, that has tremendous downstream effects that are just very unhelpful. Actually, to the giver and the receiver. Um, it means mm-hmm. the giver they just don't give it much, and when they do, they supercoat it, right? And then the receiver. Um You know it was really uncomfortable, so you know we we did a whole ton of research on this, about a year of research, and we found that the the only way to really address this the feedback issue is to is to not actually encourage a feedback culture <laughs> to not not encourage a culture of you know everyone huh. giving each other feedback um, is to actually say actually stop giving each other feedback instead um, start asking for feedback. And getting a culture of asking for feedback actually is not a slight shift, it's a complete quantum transformation, it's a total, total difference. Um, And so we've been driving that. So we we think that the feedback movement has to shift from giving feedback to asking for feedback
1: um, as the
2: principal driver of change. And um, that's not how it's taught now. Um, It's not how people think about it. So, you know, feedback management should become asking for feedback management, not giving feedback management. Um, and that one insight seems to be, you know, very, very powerful for uh, for changing the game. So I'll talk a lot more at uh, at the conference about, you know, why that is and how it works, and you know, a little bit more of the science behind it. But it's, you know, it's been a really helpful insight for uh, many um, many of our, um, our, our organizations and people following the research.
1: So just building off of that a bit, do you find that, you know, if managers are more apt to ask their direct reports for feedback, are the direct reports then more willing to ask for feedback about their work, and it's more um, easily received?
2: Yeah, that's right. You should start, it definitely should start top down. The manager should start by asking for feedback from their team. Um, it's a really, you know, that's the place to start, and that's how you get the culture going. Uh,
1: so at the Neuroleadership Institute Summit, and uh, I attended a lot of great sessions on learning and development. Um, so, what would you say is the biggest mistake companies are making today when it comes to l and d I mean humans have a digestion rate of
2: ideas um we 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 have a certain speed at which we can digest and apply ideas um and certainly there's some variation um you know for some people it's much faster than others, but it's you know it's within a range um and that range. Is something around the order of you know one or two habits at a time, for anywhere from maybe a day or two to you know a few weeks, um, and and that's a pre-fixed digestion point. It's it's like it's 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 really like the digestion point for food. You know certainly some people can eat a meal and be done with it and ready for the next meal faster than others. For so some <laughs> people it's three hours, for some people it's five mm-hmm. or six hours. But no one can move between three meals with an hour break, and. <laughs> no one can eat a week's worth of food in a day. It's just, it's just like it doesn't work that way. Like we've got, you know, there's some variation but it's within a general point. And, and basically our digestion time and the, you know, the amount that we can process is completely ignored. Um, and there's just, yeah, no one just, there's, there's no metrics for it, there's no measurement for it, there's no penalty if you give people a week's worth of ideas in a day. Um, you know, we penalize the participants and, you know, um, by taking away breaks, heels and everything else, um, but it, it, it's, um, yeah, that's the biggest issue. So we're just, we're not respecting the biological limits of learning.
1: And I think that NLI did a really good job of living that at the conference as well with, you know, little bite-sized pieces of content, which I think, you know, companies can really learn from that because it it makes people more engaged and, um, you know, interacting with the content. Hmm. Yeah, we
2: need we need those um. Any learning to be within the realms of what can be digested, and uh, you know, ignoring that is just kind of crazy. It's just we ignore it because we can't see the things. So think bite-sized chunks. <laughs> yeah, bite-sized chunks. You know, where people can can take something away and apply it. Um, and and you know, the same way we learn to drive. You know, when we learn to drive, we don't go straight onto the freeway, right? We firstly learn the chunk of um, you know, uh, steering while someone else does the accelerator and brake. You know, once we've got steering down, then we learn the accelerator and brake. You know, once we've got that down, then we learn actually driving in traffic. Right? Once we've got that down, then we parallel park. But you don't jump in a car and parallel park; you just smash into a car. Um, <laughs> right. So, but so you've got to, you know, one chunk at a time. Now, certainly, you know, some people could learn all that in a day, maybe. Um, you do much better if you learn one chunk and sleep on it, and come back the next day. It's good research on that, but you know and probably the best way to learn that is to practice you know a few times a week um you know with sleep between you know and then you know add new chunks you know when when you're ready when you've learned the previous chunk and so that that insight of just kind of like you know learn something go and apply it now add something you know it's it's like building a building you got to build foundations then build the you know the next floor then build the next floor we have to we have to build up um and i think that's another thing that we kind of organizations miss is that Learning does need to be um, sort of layered. It's not so much about bite size as that layering. I mean, yes, small size is important, but it's, it's really about getting things in the right order as well, and having just enough time with each with each bite. Right.
1: And when you said uh, built up, it, it did kind of link to the next question I had about recognition. Uh, as you know, you know we're a social recognition company. Uh, how do you see social recognition? being helpful in, in motivating, and even in that learning process at companies. Yeah, you know, it's,
2: it's, it's interesting. I mean, the research on motivation is, the strongest motivations are all social. Um, like, the brain is, is highly tuned and attuned to social threats and rewards. Um, you know, social dangers and social opportunities. We're, we're highly attuned to that. And, um, you know, a reward, like a financial reward, um, is a little bit motivating, but when that financial reward is social as well, when you know other people know about it um and also it's it's fair um you know two social things then then it's much more rewarding um there's been various studies on this, you know adding social to a reward mechanism is much much more rewarding, literally activates the reward network you know a lot more so i think um yeah, I think reward is social reward um all the research points to that and You know, we've got to recognize that you know the best motivation programs, you know, tap into social because that's the way the brain naturally thinks.
1: Mm -hmm. And my last question for you is something we like to ask all of our work human speakers, and it's always different. Um, What does a more human workplace mean to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, humans are animals in a sense, and obviously um we don't we don 't kind of think about the innate needs of the human animal, you know light and temperature and um you know and food like those things we kind of think about, although you know we've got we get temperature wrong for fifty percent of the population because it's set by the other half um <laughs> we tend to get um a number you know the food wrong but but essentially the you know human needs are much more than just food shelter and water and light um the we We should be studying you know uh, human needs in the way we would study a plant's needs or an animal's needs and say you know what are the optimum conditions um and so there's a lot of science in there and it's not but the idea actually ironically is not to dehumanize people through science it's to it's to really understand what humans really need through science and um so so I think the, the most human workplace actually uh you know respects the science of what makes us human um which is ironic, you know, in order to be more human, we need to actually be more scientific about humanity. Um, that's how I would see it. And there's a lot, of, a lot of things we would do differently if we really understood how the brain works. Um, well, lots of things we do differently. I mean, the simplest thing is, you know, let people do their quiet work in the morning. Don't schedule meetings. The mornings are amazing for, for productivity. One simple thing, um, not that hard to understand from a brain perspective, you know, a quieter brain is more effective. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, that one change can be hugely influential in, a, in an organization's performance. So, so just to, you know, to, to be more human, uh, follow the science. And uh, one of our goals is to, you know, make organizations more human through science. Um, and at the Neuroleadership Institute, that's a, you know, big part of what we're up to. Uh, right now, it's around, you know, better conversations, you know, performance practice, uh, smarter teams, you know, d practice, and real change in our um, leadership and change practice. Um, And we've got insights in each of those to to help organizations really uh, accelerate through science. So yeah, that's the backstory. Great, well, we look forward to hearing more at WorkHuman next year. Thanks very much, appreciate the opportunity to connect today, look forward to seeing everyone there.
0: Thank you for listening to our interview with David Rock of the Neuro Leadership Institute. He will be speaking at WorkHuman 2018, which is August 2nd through 5th in Austin, Texas. If you would like to join us, visit www.workhuman.com and get your ticket. If you want to follow all the different WorkHuman things that we're talking about, we're on LinkedIn as a community forum. You can submit your ideas at different questions or, or problems that you're dealing with in your organization there uh, just look up the work human community forum we're also on our global force blog www.globalforce.com backslash gf blog and remember to stay tuned to all of our work human radio episodes and follow us on uh, the social media channels so sarah thanks for another great episode and listeners thank you we hope you have a wonderful week and we will see you next time